Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 21st, 2021. Um, greetings from San Francisco, California. Uh, today, the I don't know if this is the right word, the surreal nature of the American justice or injustice system and the the casino-like nature of the, the justice system um, uh, is, is, is self-evident. Uh, one headline today is that Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man, he's worth, depending on, on the value of Amazon stock, somewhere around $200 billion dollars. Gave a $100 million award to the CNN um, pundit, Van Jones. I'm not entirely sure why. Perhaps uh, he caught uh, Jeff Bezos uh, on a good day. And it's not entirely clear what Van Jones is going to do with the money. He's not a bad guy. He's probably a very good guy. But it it just suggests the absurd arbitrariness of, 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 of the not of the criminal justice system, but of our sense of justice and injustice. Meanwhile, the other headline that uh, caught my eye this morning is in the hill that the Chicago pre police surprise surprise were unprepared to handle the George Floyd protests I think what that headline suggests and the Bezos headline is there are structural issues to the American cr criminal justice system to the George Floyd case and of this endemic racism that underpins uh, law, order, criminality uh, in the American system. My guest today on the show um, has spent his life fighting this on lots of different fronts. He's a lawyer. Uh, his book, Gideon's Promise, that came out last year, uh, is now out in paperback. He's based in Atlanta, Georgia. He's also the head of a nonprofit. Uh, a justice-fighting organization called Gideon's Promise. Um, and his name is uh, Jonathan Rapping. Uh, Jonathan, um, I hope that wasn't a, a too odd an introduction. Is there a connection between Jeff Bezos's decision for some reason or other to just hand out hundreds of million dollars uh, and this headline about the Chicago police, this arbitrariness of the American criminal justice system and our sense of doing good, of righting wrongs. Uh, is there a connection? Well, I think there's a connection in the sense that for the last year, year and a half, the nation certainly has been recognizing um, what I think many of us in this space have known all along that that 400 years years of of racism in America uh, is a, is still alive and well and, and largely playing uh, playing itself out in our criminal legal system and they're seeing the brutality visited by police upon black and brown communities in the streets and they're standing up uh, and, and I think um, to, to 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 sort of consider that alongside Jeff Bezos who is uh, you know, being criticized for spending so much money to to take trips in a rocket ship. Um, I, I, I assume Jeff Bezos realizes that uh, to, to to sort of 
it's probably uh, important to couple his his rocket trip with a commitment to doing good. And I think Van Jones is someone who had a history of uh, as an activist before he joined CNN. And I think giving that money to Van Jones is probably Jeff Bezos' way of saying, look, you know, I think it's important to do space exploration, but I also am committed to doing work on the ground. And Van Jones is a very visible figure who has had a history of doing good social activism. So, so I, I imagine that is a connection. Yeah, and I don't want to make this a show. We've had too many shows on Jeff Bezos, uh, and I'm not doubting Van Jones. It's not his fault that, that Bezos decided to give him $100 million. I am curious, though, um, on the George Floyd front, for people watching, um, screenshot mm -hmm. is uh, of the New York Times, uh, an excellent series of how George Floyd was killed in police custody. Um, John, you have argued that the the Floyd killing, the Floyd case, the Black Lives Matter movement um, is not coincidental, it's structural, and it relates to the profound injustice of the American legal system, uh, uh, an injustice that you, you are spending your life fighting. What is the connection? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that question because I think that, that there were many people who celebrated um, the, the conviction of Derek Chauvin and, and in many ways, prosecutors position themselves as the heroes, the good guys in that prosecution. But I think it is really important to, to recognize that those same prosecutors who, when the spotlight is on, are willing to charge police officers, they created the very officers that they're now charging. They, you don't get a Derek Chauvin. You don't get police officers who feel like they can they can brutalize people with impunity if it's not for prosecutors who for years and years and years have turned a blind eye to police when they engage in illegal searches and seizures, when they stop people based on racial profiling, when they coerce confessions, um, when they plant evidence. Prosecutors have turned a blind eye to that forever. And so it, it, it's almost inevitable that those officers feel uh, empowered to, to, to exact whatever violence they want on the communities they serve. But, but, but I also just have to say it's, it's important to recognize that George Floyd, um, while, while uh, the, the nation watched in horror as he was brutally killed, um, George Floyd was a victim of the criminal legal system long before. In 2004, he was arrested at now appears wrongly accused of a drug crime. He was coerced with the threat of a very harsh prison sentence into pleading guilty to something he likely didn't do, something people do all the time. He spent 10 months in prison. It now turns out that the officer responsible for that was engaged in a no-knock warrant that led to someone's de death and is being criminally prosecuted. But George Floyd was a victim of the criminal legal system. The very prosecutors that prosecuted the police in his death, um, there is a connection and we have to understand that connection. We can't stand up against police killing people in the streets without also standing up against police engaging in routine traffic stops, illegal searches, coerced confessions. There's a connection. I want to come back to the police later, uh, John, but let's talk more about the book, um, Gideon's Promise, a, a public 
defender movement to transform criminal justice. Uh, I've been reading it this morning. It's not pleasant reading. It's important, essential reading. But some of the stuff you bring up doesn't surprise me, but it's so shocking because, firstly, it speaks to the profound injustice of the American system. But secondly, it's always the poor. It's the ignorant. It's the infirm. It's the unfortunate. They're always the victim. So talk to me about this system of of how rotten it is. You know it as well as anyone. You've spent your life trying to reform it. Well, I think that's right. You could walk into any courtroom in America, and at Gideon's Promise, we actually have an internship program where we have high school students, college students, and law students. I teach law school at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. I have law students. These are young folks who walk into courtrooms for the first time. And this could be any courtroom in America. And they watch what's happening. And what you quickly realize is the aspirational ideals we teach in law school equal justice, due process, right to counsel, don't really exist. Criminal courts in America are reserved exclusively for the poor, disproportionately for people of color. Um, and, And there is a culture that has come to see the people thrown into this system as subhuman. They're really sort of defined by the charge they're accused of rather than the whole person. Um, that is standing there. And and if I may, Andrew, I I don't want to be talking too long on one question, but but there's a story I tell in the book that I think really um, exhibits this. Uh, And it's a story about when my wife and I took our children to Washington, D.C. a couple years ago. My son was 10 at the time. My daughter was 14. And we went to the National Museum of African-American History, which is an amazing museum. Yeah, a wonderful new museum. Very, very impressive. Very... uh... Very well done. And everyone should go to it. And and, and it traces the history of of sort of the African-American experience. Um, And it starts 400 years ago with slavery. And you work your way up these ramps. And and my kids and I and my wife, we we worked our way up to about the Jim Crow era. And it was lunchtime. And it was just emotionally heavy. And so we decided to come back the next day and finish. And we had lunch. And my kids said, Daddy, I want to go to the courthouse where you started your career because I, I began as a public defender in D.C. and we went to the D.C. Superior Courthouse. And we went to the courtroom, Andrew, where they do first appearance hearings, where people are, 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 are showing up before a judge usually the day after they're arrested. And we watch as they call the first case, and it's a young black man, hands chained together, chained to a chain around his waist. And they spend about a minute on that case. They're on to the next case. And after about five or six of these cases, my son turns to me and says, Daddy, this is just like that museum. And it dawned on me that here's a 10-year-old child who realizes that what is happening in a courtroom in the nation's capital is more akin to slavery or Jim Crow than to justice. And here is a courtroom full of professionals, a judge, defense lawyers, prosecutors, courtroom staff, many of whom I knew from my days in DC. They're good people, but they have become resigned to that system. They watch that and contribute to that processing every single day. That's a culture we have to deal with or we're never gonna have real justice. Uh, you mentioned your wife um, in, in the book, uh, Gideon's Promise, John. Um, you explain that uh, she herself was the victim in, in some ways, uh, certainly well, her father, of the injustice of the American 
supposedly criminal justice system. Tell me about your wife's story and why you chose to write to make it so central to the book. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that question because I, I, I really can't talk about Gideon's promise without talking about my wife. And I don't think we can talk about public defenders without talking about the communities they serve. So my wife's experience is absolutely central to the work we do at Gideon's Promise. Um, my, my wife was a, a five-year-old child raised in a black community in Buffalo when her father was arrested and charged with crimes he committed years earlier. Um, by the time he was arrested, he had turned his life around. He was a small business owner. He converted to Islam. He had three children. She was the oldest at five. Her mother was pregnant with the fourth. He was married and he was arrested, charged with crimes he committed years earlier. And he was given a public defender. And that public defender never told that story. And without his story being told, he was processed through the system and sentenced to 10 years in Attica. So my wife grew up knowing her father from behind bars. And one thing she said, Andrew, that I think really gets at the heart of our work is, she said to me once, you know, what was even harder than growing up knowing my father from behind bars was coming to the realization that the people I love, most of the men in her life had been impacted by the criminal legal system, coming to the realization that the people I love don't matter. And what struck me, Andrew, was that message was primarily delivered to her and her family by a public defender, a public defender who probably came into the work for the right reasons, but over years became so resigned to the status quo, he lost sight of how his indifference not only impacted the man standing next to him, but that five-year-old girl, her family, and there are children like her across the country. So, so when we talk about mass incarceration, we have to talk about more than just the 2.3 million people who are locked up on any given day. We have to talk about more than the 7 million people who are under correctional supervision. We have to also talk about the five-year-old children, the families, the people who are left behind. Um, that's the cost, the human cost of mass incarceration. John, we've had a number of shows about the American police, about reforming mm -hmm. it. Everyone from Alex Vitale, the end of policing, he appeared on the show, suggesting that Biden should profoundly reform the police. <clears throat> to Rosa, Blo uh, Rosa Brooks, who, who wrote a really good book uh, earlier this year, Tangled Up in Blue, in which uh, a law professor, I'm sure you know her, um, became part of the, the Washington, D.C. police, and it was a much more sympathetic portrayal of, of the police. Is the heart of the problem of the system the police? Are the police, by definition, racist and unjust or unjust? Um, is, is this a problem most of all of policing? And, and obviously the issue of policing has come up more and more in, in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and in stuff on George Floyd. Yeah, no, no, I, I look, I, I, I want to be clear. I, I think there are police officers. I think there are prosecutors. I think there are judges. I think there are defense lawyers who, um, who view people impacted by the system as subhuman. Um, but, but I don't think that's the majority. I think most people that do this work um, they come into the work for the right reasons, but I think they're all products of a system that is inherently racist, inherently classist, and ultimately you either get out or that system shapes you. So, 
Certainly police are a huge part of that. But I also think, Andrew, they're the most visible part because we now have cell phones and people are now recording the brutality that is happening in the streets. But but we have to remember for every person killed by a police officer, tens of thousands survive police encounters. They're thrown into the criminal legal system where they're subjected to a different kind of violence, a routine violence, a normalized violence, an invisible violence that happens when there's no cell phone cameras or TV footage. And it's a violence committed by prosecutors when they hold people on money bonds they can't afford. It's committed by prosecutors when they overcharge. It's committed by judges when they hand down draconian sentences. And so I don't want to I don't want to say that police are the bad actors and everyone else is working towards justice. These are all people in the system who are contributing to racially disparate, unjust, inhumane outcomes. Police are certainly the starting point, the most visible point, and they deserve their share of critique, absolutely. But it'd be a mistake to disconnect that from what happens in the courtroom when no one's watching. Yeah, and I think your narrative about the courtroom, which is the heart of your book and your organization, Gideon's Promise, uh, the book is called Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice, um, makes that point very clearly. Um, Your organization, uh, its mission is is dedicated to uh, a network of of nonprofit defenders. Um, It it seems a very uh, noble endeavor. it's called um, Gideon's Promise because of a well-known, at least to lawyers, a well-known uh, court case, Gideon versus Ray, uh, Wainwright mm-hmm. uh, from 1963. What was this case and why did you choose to, to, to call your movement Gideon's Promise? Yeah, um, it, it, that's a great question. So, so Gideon versus Wainwright is the Supreme Court case that basically says if you are charged with a crime in America, you are in, and you can't afford a lawyer, you're entitled to one. But but I think we can't understand Gideon versus Wainwright without understanding the context of the times, right? It was 1963. It was a time in our nation's history when we were grappling with civil rights abuses happening in every walk of life, voting, education, commerce, And really, Gideon is a Supreme Court case that that has to be understood alongside other seminal Supreme Court cases, like Brown versus Board of Education, alongside legislation that was transformative, like the Voting Rights Act that is so under attack now. Um, Gideon's promise really, or I'm sorry, Gideon versus Wainwright was really part of a civil rights revolution. And it It addressed civil rights violations in the criminal legal system, and it birthed public defenders as the civil rights freedom fighters in that space necessary to ensure justice. But nearly 60 years later, we haven't lived up to that promise. Public defenders are overwhelmed, beaten down, under-resourced. So the name of the organization, Gideon's Promise, is a recognition that what we're really doing is building a movement, a community of lawyers who are in alliance with communities to make that promise a reality, finally. Um, It hasn't been done yet, and that's the genesis of the name. Uh, Your book, uh, John, is is a good introduction to a lot of this legal stuff that I have to admit I I wasn't that familiar with. We all know about the Scottsboro Boys, of course. You write about them in the book. How much progress 
has really been made in the 90 years between this 1931 case and, and, and today in 2021 in terms of the reform um, of the American criminal justice system. If the Scottsboro boys were to come back now, would America look and the American legal system look profoundly different or is it really in many ways the same? Yes. Uh, so, Andrew, I think before I answer that, I, I, I want to be clear. I, I am an optimist. I wouldn't do this work if it weren't for the fact that um, that I'm hopeful. I, 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 you know, I recognize that I live in a household. My wife is black. My children are black. There was a time in this nation's history when we couldn't have been married in many places. So certainly there's been a lot of progress, but I think the place where I would argue we've had the least progress, as you've just pointed out, is our criminal legal system. In fact, I'm not sure if the Scottsboro boys were charged today. Um, they well, they were kind of uh, in the in the in the in the in the rape case, the Central Park rape case, where they almost all went nearly went to jail, and uh, a future president of the, of the United States joined the uh, the legal lynching gang. Isn't, right? isn't that the truth? The exonerated five, and and for for any of your audience who don't know about that case, Ava DuVernay has a wonderful um, uh, film about that. But but you're right. We see many cases today that look a lot like what happened with the Scottsboro boys. And while there are certainly places where the right to counsel is alive and well, there are small pockets across the country. The vast majority of places leave public defenders under-resourced and underfunded. And what happened in the Scottsboro boys case was largely, was largely nine children who were pulled off a train and given lawyers who were ill-prepared. They didn't have time to prepare. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the resources. And they rushed to trial. And they couldn't give those young men the representation they deserve. Sadly, that story plays out in courtrooms across America every day, despite progress we may be making in other areas. John, I know that uh, when uh, Barack Obama was asked about the uh, uh, OJ Simpson case and the fact that black Americans were uh, more celebratory of his um, of, 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 the, of the the decision on the trial than white Americans. Um, Obama said the black Americans knew that O.J. Simpson was guilty, but they were celebrating uh, his ability to beat the system. You have a very good section on the O.J. Uh, murder case and of the role of, of Johnny Cochran. Why is um, O.J. and Cochran, why, why, why is this narrative so important for you to explain the importance of public defense? Well, I think people who live on the margins, and particularly Black people in America, understand that the government um, has always been a force of oppression, right? The government has never treated people on the margins the way we treat our more privileged members of society. And so I think for many people who do this work, public defenders and certainly people who have been impacted by the system, Black Americans, they watch that OJ trial and they don't see it so much as a question of whether OJ Simpson was guilty in a, in a specific case. They see it as a fight where 
a lawyer like Johnny Cochran is taking on a system that has never cared about them. It's a system that never prosecuted people who abused, killed, lynched black people. It's a system that when it does actually commit to prosecuting, it's prosecuting those very same communities, black and brown communities disproportionately. And so really it was a fight between Johnny Cochran and a system that never cared for black people and black communities were cheering for Johnny Cochran. In fact, I mentioned a documentary in the book where, where uh, at the end there's a eulogy that Al Sharpton's giving and it's a eulogy for Johnny Cochran. And he says, brother OJ, let me tell you, when we were all applauding, we weren't applauding for you, OJ, we were clapping for Johnny, right? Because Johnny Cochran took on the system that has wreaked so much havoc on black communities for 400 years. And you're doing the same thing. You're taking on the system at Gideon's Promise. Um, you're fighting for equal justice. Uh, this, these are your values that were put on the screen from your website. We talk about cultural compet competency, equal justice, reforming culture and community. Very briefly, um, John, tell me what you're doing at Gideon's Promise uh, and, and, and how effective it is. I, I mean, obviously what you're doing is noble, but as you're suggesting, you're fighting a massive system, a historical system that um, has been fought before. And, and usually when people have fought it, they've lost. Well, that's right. I, I think, look, what we're doing at Gideon's Promise is we're certainly training lawyers to, to ensure people's rights are protected. But that's just a piece of what we're doing. That's what most people understand about public defense. I think more than that, we recognize that public defenders represent 80% of people who are in the criminal legal system. And these are people who have been silenced for 400 years. And when you, when you sit in a courtroom, you see that human beings are treated like case files, like widgets. And until we see every person as a full human being, we don't just label them as a thief or a marijuana smoker, we see them as a father, a mother, a shopkeeper, a barrister. Until we see them as full human beings, we won't treat them the way we want our loved ones to be treated. And what we're doing is building a movement of public defenders who see their role more broadly. They understand the importance of working with communities, of learning the stories that haven't been heard, of amplifying the voices that we don't listen to, and of infusing the system with the humanity that can make well-intentioned judges and prosecutors who have been shaped by an unjust system wake up and maybe actually start to treat people like human beings. John, very briefly, how many lawyers in your network um, and and how many, uh, how, how many clients do you do you tend to have at any one given moment? Well, so so we we started almost 15 years ago with 16 lawyers. We now have um, well over a thousand lawyers. We have a statewide partnership, and these are all full time lawyers. You're not employing them as such, right? These are full time public defenders. We partner with their offices to provide training, mentorship, and support. Each of these lawyers will represent between 150 and five, six, seven hundred people a year. Literally, these lawyers alone are impacting tens of thousands of lives every single year. And uh, John, we had uh, uh, Dr. Carl Hart from Columbia University on the show recently. He has a controversial new book out, Drug Use for Grownups. He's not so much of a political writer. He doesn't write about law. But is one 
problem with the American criminal justice system, the archaic nature of drug laws. I know that drug-related crimes are, are, are a significant proportion, uh, particularly amongst uh, African Americans. Is that one area of the law that needs to be cleaned up in order to make your lives at Gideon's Promise better, easier? Well, the short answer is absolutely. And Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, is all about what the war on drugs has done to fuel mass incarceration. But but I do want to say um, that alone is not enough. There are so many people in the system who are accused of of what we call violent crimes. We call them violent offenders, but really they're human beings who have made a mistake that may have been violent, but there's so much more than that. Until we broaden our focus and say we have to treat every person who made a mistake as a human being, we can't just carve out marijuana smokers or or, or people with substance abuse problems. Until we broaden that network and are committed to treating every person in the system as a human being, we can't really have a justice system. I'm inspired, but also depressed with what you're saying, John, because nothing seems to have changed. I had uh, Elliot Curry on the show recently. He has a new book out, A Peculiar Indifference, The, ne the Neglected Toll of Violence on Black America. In his book, he notes that between 2000 and 2018, 162,000 African-Americans lost their lives to violence. You don't read that much about that, but every day the news is filled with stuff about COVID. And um, he quotes uh, Du Bois uh, writing in the 19th century. Du Bois says, other centuries look back upon the culture of the 19th century would have the right to suppose that if in a land of freemen, eight million of human beings were found to be dying of disease, the nation would cry with one voice, heal them. If they were staggering on in ignorance, it would cry, train them. If they were harming themselves and others by crime, it would cry, guide them. Again, talking to you, not much has changed, really, since the boys, let alone the Scottsboro boys. No, and I think as long as we focus resources on the criminal legal system to the exclusion of the healthcare system, the education system, the housing system, that's not going to change. Every problem that plagues marginalized communities, whether it is mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, lack of quality education, we deal with them by criminalizing uh, people and deal with them in the criminal legal system. Until we change that mindset, what Du Bois said is going to remain to be the case. So finally, uh, John, I'm not sure if Joe Biden has the time to watch this, but if he was and there was one place he could start to begin to do something realistic that wouldn't require years of political work, what can be done? Where's a start for, for administration that many people, many progressives are actually quite sympathetic and optimistic about? Yeah, well, you have to understand that that the criminal justice system largely plays out at the state level. The federal system is a relatively small component of the whole national system, but the federal government does have the ability to influence states. And actually, President Biden is 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 talking about reopening the Access to Justice office, which was an office started under Obama, shuttered under Trump that was committed to, among other things, supporting public defense. And, and I think what Biden could and should do is to say that the, the billions of dollars sent to states for criminal justice purposes, whether it's correction, policing, prosecuting, all of that is, is it hinges on states committing 
to finally fulfilling the mandate of Gideon and making sure public defenders have manageable caseloads, resources, training needed. And so I think that they can use that money to cudgeon states to finally do what Gideon mandated they do back in 1963. And the other thing uh, Joe Biden might do is read uh, John Jonathan <laughs> Rapping's uh, paperback book. It's fresh out in paperback, Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice. A succinct and very powerful critique of the system and suggestions on, on how to reform it, a must read in my view. Um, John, you are talking to me from um, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in these strange times. Lots of books behind you. I know you're very busy, but you do have time to read. In addition to your excellent new book, uh, Gideon's Promise, what else should people be reading in these strange times? Oh, I don't have time to say them all, but there's so many good books. Alec Karakasanis wrote a book called The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. James Foreman, Locking Up Our Own. Angela Davis, Policing the Black Man. And I want to give a shout out to my friend, Chris Henning, who has a new book coming out called The Rage of Innocence, about how we criminalize black youth in America. And that's just start for starters. Well, maybe I can get Chris on the show. When's the book coming out? Uh, I believe it's coming out next month. Right. I'd be can happy to make the introduction. Him? I'd happily make the introduction. Well, Jonathan Rapping, uh, congratulations, as I said, on the book. Keep up the great work, important work, uh, important voice, and we'll have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future because this thing is certainly not going away. Thank you so much. Andrew, thank you. I appreciate it.